0: To the Buzz Podcast, I'm Mark Hyder. I'm here at the QRM Hive, and we're Hive talking. And today we are talking about the PHQ two to nine, the change in the PHQ system for the RAI, RAI manual. I still can't talk today. <laughs> I still cannot talk today. Today I have Stacy Hallacy, QRM's Senior Vice President of Integrity and Quality Improvement. Welcome, Stacy. Hello. And Megan Ustry, QRM's Director of Reimbursement. Hello, Megan. Hey, hey. Welcome back. I know you're thrilled to be here. I, Always thrilled to be talk here, right?
1: About depression.
0: <laughs> why do I have to? Why do I have to try and get that out of you? I'm <laughs> thrilled to be here, Mark. So, what is the change of the PHQ nine to now the PHQ two tonight?
1: So the change is pretty simple. Rather than you know what we're used to in the current RAI manual is that resident mood interview. You ask all nine questions record their answers. Now, we're prompted to ask the first two questions, and then based on how the patient answers those two those two questions, we proceed with the rest of the interview or we don't.
0: So why the change? Good question. <laughs> I
1: don't have a great answer for you. <laughs> we have a lot
0: of theories, but one of my fears is that CMS is continually talking about how much more PDPM has cost them, yeah. and they've looked at those Items that are used for payment, like the BIMs and the PHQ-9. And now they've changed that because those rates went up, right? Cognition rates triggered more often. Our PHQ-9 depression triggered more often, causing more payment. So is this just a a change in payment? We
1: could think that theory is correct.
0: So probably a financial decision. Could be.
1: Could be.
2: Reading what they had to say, that was not their
0: intent.
2: But right. we it, right. it but yeah. it definitely feels that way. It definitely feels. They say there's literature behind it and that the first two if you don't answer those then it really doesn't trigger for technical depression. But again, I didn't see really any real research to support that. Uh,
0: well it seems like when they rolled this out they were very clear that it we're not diagnosing depression. We're Identifying features that may indicate depression, but
2: or that take more care,
0: require more care, require more resources. resources. Correct. More this
2: resources. does this does not have to do with the diagnosis, but again, it requires more resources. So I don't okay. think this changes anything on our side. I still think it requires the same amount of resources. And again, you still have to deal with all of those questions, even though you're not scoring them. Yes.
0: Yeah. The, the the crazy thing is, so you're starting the PHQ two. You answer the first two questions. If they don't trigger, if they don't answer uh, or give a response that requires you to continue the interview, what do you do after the first two questions?
1: Ari, right, I mean, it tells you to end the interview. In okay. it says to end the interview. Now, as as a clinician, is that something that you do? I, I mean, if you can tell that somebody is upset or sad, or they don't answer questions the way you would anticipate that they would maybe you really know this patient, I would want to know if the the answer to the rest of those questions, I would want to know. I think that's how we best care for our patients. But the REI manual tells you now, if they don't answer the question at all, you end the patient interview and perhaps you proceed to the staff interview. But I would, to best care for our patients, you want to know the answer to all of these questions.
2: Is a practical approach to review our social services initial assessment and see if those questions are asked in the social services interview questions. Just, I mean, doesn't say you can't ask those type of questions and maybe social services would want to add those to their interview questions. Again, not as a part of the PHQ2, but just a way to understand and get a, a better assessment of how the patient's feeling and then maybe care plan for that. Yeah. And I mean,
1: I think what I've said before and what I'll say again is this interview is part of the MDS, the minimum data set. It's not to say that we can't further assess the patients. This is the minimum amount of data that we need to care plan
0: for the patient. So sometimes more is better. Sometimes it is. You know, the thing that really I struggle with in this is that when the PHQ-9 was rolled out, it was supposed to be a valid, reliable test that, that, that really was meaningful, that would allow us to identify the right symptoms that that required additional care and attention and care planning. And now we're being told, ask the first two and then stop. And then what you're saying is it's still our responsibility to know the information that's included in these other questions, but you're not necessarily going to continue with asking those questions directly in this setting. Correct.
1: We still need to know. You know, the last question is, you know, basically, have you had thoughts of harming yourself? Or ending your life. Like that is a heavy question. And who's to say that just because they answered the first two as no or didn't respond, that they are not still having those thoughts? And that is a huge safety concern. We need to know the answer to things like that.
0: Well, so many of those questions too have so much information in them. And and, and even when we were doing just the PhQ nine. You really had to slow down. Are you sleeping too much, too little. You're eating too much or too little. They're opposites, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can't just ask too much or too little, yes or no. Mm-hmm. You know, it really required some thought and really indicated different features of behavior. So I'm really concerned that it's going to be really difficult to get these answers. And if you have somebody else ask them, are you really going to, to hand them the other seven questions and say, somebody else needs to ask these because. I'm not going to, right? <laughs> the know, manager said stop, so I stopped. But I need right? to know these things. So what do you do?
2: That's what I think. We look at our social services assessment, or adding the those system. into the other nursing assessment. But I, again, I think the question should be asked, mm-hmm. and it's just because they don't say ask them on this sequential step doesn't mean we can't ask them in a different format. It's just we stop this particular
0: this particular structure. assess the and structured this, assessment, the structured right?
2: Assessment. And, I mean, it's. I think we also have to think about, in a lot of settings, they have asked therapy to take over doing PHQ. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were doing it. So this is now even a little bit even scarier when it's just going to be the therapist who just stops asking, you know, only goes to those first two questions. Mm -hmm. There definitely has to be a way to trigger somebody else to take a, to look at those if it it stops at that particular
0: first two. Yeah, lots of communication, very clear communication. And I go back to the financial implications because one of the things that scares me the most is that from the articles I've read and from the opinion pieces that I've seen because I haven't seen any facts or figures yet. A lot of times that score of 10 that triggered the PHQ-9 was created on those other seven questions. A lot of it was. So we still have people who have needs. We still have the the care that we're going to be providing but it's going to be much more difficult to score them in that range.
2: Oh, I think you're going to see those numbers drop drastically.
0: So this market basket increase could be not as big as people think, right?
2: I, I think for people who are capturing depression, you're going to drastically see it decrease. For people who weren't capturing depression, not so much. Right? This is what it is. This is what it is. Yeah. But I think for the people who are actually capturing it and caring for the patients with, and the residents with, the, with depression, I think this is going to...
0: So it seems like Additional training needs to go into this because your first two questions are going to be so crucial. Going down, unbundling, unraveling, untangling, whatever those terms are that we use. Unpaying. For the crazy. Oh, no. Oh. That's not. That's, right.
2: that's, that's where CMS is. For, huh? That's
0: right. <laughs> yeah. Taking the time, doing it right. So, Megan, where do you start with this? Because Stacy said, in some settings, they have had their therapists doing that. Mm-hmm. We've, we've looked at social services doing that, activities doing that. MBS uh, nurses doing that, doing the interview. Who's best suited to do this interview?
1: I think the best person for this job is the person that can build somewhat of a rapport and a relationship with a patient before asking them all these heavy hitting questions. Who has a great, you know, bedside manner? Who can go in and say, Look, I'm going to ask you some of these questions. It might be a little bit difficult. You know, they're heavy questions. I myself have had a PHQ-9 at my family physician office. My oldest daughter, when she turned 12, they did a PHQ-9 on her. And I'm sitting there like, I'm about to learn a lot (laughs) about my daughter. And I'm not sure that she answered them truthfully and appropriately, right? So you've got to build that relationship first before you go into asking all of these questions.
2: That's a really good point, Megan, because I just recently was at the hospital with my husband and they asked him those questions Mm -hmm. as well.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: They should have asked me to leave the room. You know, yeah. and they didn't. Yeah. yeah. And I because agree. he certainly was not answering them correctly mm-hmm. based on the fact of, of what my input might have been. So you weren't getting a truthful reflection of the, of the person if they're answering in front of somebody who they feel they can't let down or something. Right. So I agree.
1: I,
0: well, in, in, in our case, in skilled nursing, how often do they have a roommate? Oh, yeah. And yeah. you'll pull the curtain or you see somebody pull the curtain as if you're entering the dome of silence, right? <laughs> <laughs> Here's they the curtain. can hear me. Don't hear, hear me. So now me. I'm going to ask really personal questions. So what, do do? what steps do you take to build up that rapport? and When does that start?
1: I think, you know, a rapport can be built very quickly, in my opinion. I think, you know, you go in, notice some things around, uh, you know, around their room. I have a just quick story so there was a patient that i was caring for many years ago and she had several little stuffed corgi dogs in her room and up until that point i had no idea that corgis were herding dogs but i sat there and asked her about them and we talked about you know how many corgis she had and the queen and she has corgis and like all this stuff and in a very short amount of time i learned something about her and learned something that i had no idea was like a thing before. So I think, you know, just observing their room, asking them a couple of questions about how their day is going, maybe about their family, if they've got pictures in their room, whatever, flowers, whatever it is. Just take the time to have a quick conversation before you jump straight into all of those questions.
0: Great. What would you add, Stacey? What are your concerns beyond this? What are the things that you would Talk to your therapist about when it comes to PHQ 2 tonight.
2: I I, you brought up the great point. I think it's critical to really get in and understand these two questions, the first two questions, and making sure that we ask those and be able to give them time to answer that it's the right setting. I do think, again, not the is the only people who can. But typically, by the time we get to the ARD, you might have a therapist who has spent five solid hours with somebody, mm-hmm. you know, in a, and sometimes in an intimate setting and in, you know, going to the bathroom, discussing pain, you know, you're seeing them unclothed, you're seeing them in various states and, mm-hmm. and people tend to you develop that trust very quickly. And so I do believe that sometimes they have a great relationship with the patients and you might can get us a, a, a more accurate answer. So I think therapy should answer these questions for all their yeah. patients. Whether that's what's used and they give it, you know, to the MDS nurse and we say that we've looked at these other things. And I mean, how do you decide which one you do if you do multiple of them? But you get care plans, right? And decide which one you're picking. But I think as a therapist, it's also good questions for me to know just so I know how to best approach that patient and deal with them on my treatment plan. So I don't think it's bad to ask them to follow through with doing the PHQ-2 as well for all their patients. Mm-hmm. And then, again, the facility can have a decision like how we use that information, but I definitely think it's a critical piece of understanding your patient and knowing how they're feeling and what's the best way to
0: approach therapy. Yeah, I like that. I think therapists are often underutilized in that capacity because we do spend so much time with the residents. We do have time to talk about, like what Megan was talking about, the corgi dogs. Mm-hmm. We have time to do that when you're exercising, when you're challenging balance, when you're retraining, there are those moments where where we do talk about their personal lives and maybe build up that rapport a little bit better. And I think we can ask those questions. You look a little down. Are you feeling down? Which is different than depressed? are hopeless, right? Correct. And right. so we we can get some of those responses by asking the right questions at the right time in the right setting.
2: And I do think, I mean, again, I know that social service, typically there might be one social service person for a facility, if they're lucky to. If that social service is the first time they're going in to deal with that patient, and it's a million things happening that day, and you've got three other rooms that have to be changed and the other family's being discharged. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I need this PHQ two done and I have to do it here because I have care count. This is the rest of the afternoon. And that's the first time that patient might've ever spoken to the social worker. I'm not sure you're going to get the best answer, just, right. you know, because if that person's feeling frazzled and harried, you're like, oh, they don't really care. They just want to answer these questions. So I do think we need training for our staff is go in calm, you know, give yourself time to answer these, ask these questions again, which is why it makes a lot of sense in therapy to do it. Cause we have that time. We have, again, an hour, 45 minutes. It's not a fast, rushed in
0: and out out process. Between activities. It can happen easily between activities with therapy. So best advice, Megan? PHQ two to nine, how should facilities prepare for this?
1: I think identify point person. Who is the best person for the job? I think, you know, historically it was always the social workers, right? It, It can't be a cookie cutter approach for every building. As you guys say, like it could be therapists, and maybe they are the best ones for the job. Maybe We have some facilities that use activities directors. They spend a lot of time with the patients, too. So identify your
0: person. I like that. You know, in, in one of the facilities that I, I used to manage, we had an MDS nurse who decided to take it back from social worker and started doing it, uh, having the residents complete it in writing. Mm-hmm. Their depression rates went up because they were less intimidated to write it down. Mm-hmm. So I think the person, the strategy, the time that we're, we're spending, we spend training on it. Mm-hmm. All good things. Stacy, your best advice?
2: Train multiple people in the facility to do the phq too.
0: I like that. A backup to the backup. Back to
2: the backup. Yeah. Again, why not train your whole therapy staff, your, all your activity all staff, mm-hmm. your nursing staff, your MDS. You know, some facilities have what they call um, ambassadors or care angels, and everybody's assigned that person sort of walked them through. Anybody can do this. Let's make sure we train everybody on it. And even if you're not, maybe not necessarily the person who's is doing it that day, it's going to train us to pick up on those things that are important. That maybe even in another conversation, they answer those questions that we can then care plan it. But I, I would train multiple people on this and to take their time and to really understand what the questions really mean.
0: I like that, especially since the... The ability to move the assessment reference date, to capture services that happen in the hospital has not changed. So sometimes we have extremely brief windows, one, two, three days, and that can happen over a weekend, holidays, whatever. One, two, three days, somebody needs to do it. Somebody needs to build that rapport. Somebody has to know it's their responsibility. I think that's great advice. The last thing for me is really make sure that we're, we're treating this as a patient care issue. Are you identifying all those areas that are captured in questions three through nine that may not be triggered if the first two questions aren't answered with enough acuity or a high enough score. So make sure that we're taking care of our residents, doing the right thing, ends up in the care plan. We have documentation of what we're doing. So thank you ladies for spending time here at The Hive. Thank you everybody for listening. You keep coming back, we'll keep talking. Thanks.